0: This is the What Matters Most podcast, a 100% listener-supported program. And now, here is your host, Paul Samuel Dolman.
1: Welcome back to What Matters Most. This is a very special day for me and all of you around the world. Thanks for uh, tuning in, too. I know we have an audience in a lot of countries, and you're right in, and guest suggestions, affirmations, there's Patreons who support the show. About five years ago, I had this guest on and I fell in love with him and his work, his his heart, his poetry. And then I have got, luckily, I had a pretty good seat in one of the first few rows and I've just watched this tremendous ascent. It's nice to know that brilliance has a place in our society. And it has culminated in his latest book, which just broke me in a good way. How the word is passed a reckoning with the history of slavery across america and i want to say in this moment in time as we record this it is the number 1 best selling book on the new york times list congratulations and welcome home clint smith thanks for coming on
0: thank you so much for having me it's great to be back after a after a five year sabbatical
1: you're like odysseus it's like but you're coming back <laughs> I got to ask you what's it like to have a book number 1 is this like a surreal occurrence are you pinching yourself
0: it is uh it's bananas i got to tell you i mean it's it is not something that i ever i never considered it in the realm of possibility i mean i you know it's a dream to even have the opportunity to be on the new york times bestseller list right and i almost was wary of letting myself Get too fixated on that because you you know you you spend I spent four years writing this book. Many authors spend years and years writing work that never reaches a wide audience. It's it's not guaranteed that you will find readers. I think I read somewhere that ninety eight percent of all books published sell less than five thousand copies. So so you know the bestseller list is this thing that you know you're a New York Times bestseller forever, and it's you know the top fifteen books uh of each week in each genre and you know i mean it it, the list is full of people like oprah and um you know bill o'reilly on the other side and um all sorts of politicians and celeb matthew mcconaughey and you know lady gaga uh and it's so so i was wary of like letting any sort of external uh Metrics of success define what the success of the book would be because I think that that's a dangerous game to play, um and and you'll and it's just not a healthy one. So you know, I was like, I hope I make the bestseller list. If I can sneak on at number fifteen, that would be amazing. But number one, I mean, never. I I literally never considered it. And my agent um and my editor told me because the the list comes out at around five o'clock on wednesday uh every week and so my agent was like just stay be by your phone wednesday at five and so i was just sitting there and it was like 459 and then my phone turned to five and i was like all right here we go it's okay if you didn't make the list clint like it's all right you wrote a great book you wrote the book you're proud of um and then it went to 505 and then it went to 510 and then it got to 515 and i was like oh snap like I didn't make it. They're trying to figure out how to tell me. I didn't get on the list. It's okay. I was like, nobody even, nobody needs the bestseller list anyway. Like, I'm not defined. My success isn't defined by that. And then at like 5.17, uh, my editor and agent both called me, and they were just screaming. <laughs> they were just, just, my agent was like screaming on the street. And she was just like, number one. We're number one. It's number one. And I just, I like f- fell out of my chair. I couldn't believe it. I can't believe it. It's, it's it's, uh, it's unbelievable. I'm so grateful to the readers um, and people who have been reading and sharing and recommending. It's been, um, I I really feel like I'm about to wake up from something, but I I haven't woken up yet.
1: You tell it beautifully. I know everything you said I agree with. Let's not let the external, but to, to pour your heart and soul into something like this, and it's such an important work. There must be an almost an ineffable feeling of gratification to have it recognized. And number one's insane. I mean, it's barely even out. I think it's going to have a long shelf life, like any great book I saw in an airport and I thought, Ooh, 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 there's a good sign uh, up there, up front. And what's that gratification like to have your voice literally not only heard, but the, the applause came back down the mountain.
0: Yeah, it's, um, I think it, I think the sort of foreverness of it is really striking, right? That like for the rest of my life, I will be a number one New York Times bestselling author. I mean, even having that, even saying that into this microphone from my lips sounds ridiculous. Um, so, I mean, I, it's, it's, I'm almost, I'm just so full of gratitude to so many peoples, to my to all of the public historians and the scholars and the teachers and the students and the activists and um, all of the museum curators and all the people who shared their stories with me in this book. I'm so grateful to the uh, my editor, to my agent, to my wife who like read this manuscript front to back a year ago in the middle of COVID uh, while also, we're, you know, we have two small kids and she also has a full-time job but like gave feedback that transformed the book. Um, I, I'm so grateful to the you know all there's so many people that make a book what it is the copy editor my fact checker oh my fact checker was she just she saved the day on like several occasions from things that would have been so embarrassing you know um but like my assist i mean just everybody it takes an entire village an entire community um to to put a book out into the world and i'm just so grateful to everyone who who had their hands on it i i think often about this uh Alfred Lord Tennyson poem Ulysses and in it he has a line where he says that I am a part of all that I have met and and I carry that with me uh I don't have a tattoo but if I'm if I were to get a tattoo it would probably be that line um and I believe it this book is the culmination of everyone I've ever met and spoken to and talked to whether it was specifically for this book or or otherwise you know my third grade teacher my uh you know cousins i used to play with in the summers in new orleans my it just everyone everyone big and small i'm a big believer in that we who we are is shaped by people and places and moments that we might not ever be cognizant of um and so even the i'm grateful for even those people that i can't who who impacted my life in ways that i'll never know um and i think that we all have to move through the world with that recognition that you know especially those of us who are who are blessed to have you know great opportunities or some measure of success um, that that is not our own it belongs to so many other people
1: beautiful and generous and true i agree with the holistic approach and it's cliche it takes a village and as you said all that i heard the phrase together we rise or fall you mentioned COVID too. I wondered about you because I know your new little family and everything. How did you do over the last year with COVID? Year and a half, really, and we're still in it. Uh, hopefully, you didn't lose anybody close to you. But how how did you guys cope and mentally inside of you? Did did you survive?
0: Yeah, I mean, we're really really fortunate to not uh, to have not lost anyone
1: um, close to us, uh, and
0: it's not lost on me that that is an enormous. Um, an enormous privilege what is it 650,000 or 700,000 people have died millions of people have died across the world um it was hard i mean i think it was hard on everybody in all sorts of ways but it was really hard i we have a now 4 year old and 2 year old who when the pandemic began were a 3 year old and a 1 year old um and it <laughs> i love my kids more than anything but i had no plans on being in the house with them for 16 months nonstop um and without childcare for the first half of that um so yeah i mean we had no childcare from march to september um and it was really it was really hard uh, my wife and i both work full time i was the beginning of the pandemic trying to finish my dissertation um i was and then then trying to finish a book and then i started a full-time job at the atlantic um and my kids are like pay attention to me you know it, as kids as kids should be um and so we we split up our days and one one of us would have the kids half the day and the other one would have the kids the other half you try to squeeze as much time uh, work time and email time as you can into those moments and you work after the kids go to sleep and I'm like trying to edit my book falling asleep in front of my laptop. Um uh you know you try to sneak it in during nap time during an episode of Sesame Street. It was just I mean there was there was nothing glamorous about this book writing process. It was a it was a grind. It was just it was a real grind. It has been since the beginning because I've been working on this book's my my son is four years old and I started this book the same month that he was born. And so, I can't disentangle my experience of being a being a father to young children from writing this book. And so it meant that I was quickly disabused of the idea that I would have these like long, luxurious, extended periods of time to write a book. Like there was no going to, you know, like a writing residency. There was no uh, month-long retreat. There was no. it was none of that. It was like, do I have thirty minutes? How much can I write in thirty minutes? Do I have twenty minutes? How can how much can I write in? 20 minutes i have an hour oh my gosh like i should you know an hour was a was like somebody you know opening up the world to me um so yeah it's uh it was a hard time but we were also very you know clearly much for, more fortunate um than than so many others and so it's uh i'm i'm simultaneously thankful um and also uh it and also it was hard it took a it took an emotional and psychological toll on us um in in ways that i think we're still discovering
1: given that now and the quality of the book i think we're gonna to have to come up with some special award maybe involve the nobel committee or something because that's an incredible that you were able to do that under such duress it's not a coincidence is it that this beautiful masterpiece started its embryonic creation as your new life came in i mean do you think those two are tied together
0: i'm sure it is um i'm i'm sure that. You know the thing that kids do is they at once for me they like my kids slow me down and make me more fully present in the moments that i occupy in this world and also simultaneously sort of raise the stakes and like make everything that's happening feel so much more urgent um and so i've felt that profoundly and probably probably most profoundly during uh, in the aftermath of George Floyd's death and and everything that transpired last summer where, uh, you know, I didn't go to any protest or go to because I have two small children like I can't, you know, I'm not, we didn't, we knew so so little about how COVID was transmitted, I wasn't going to go down there and uh, risk, you know, bringing something back to them and you know, they both have uh, at that time both had some breathing issues and some uh, different degrees of of asthma, um, and so it just you know it. But at the same time, you're like, we have to build a better world than the one that that exists now. Um, and I part of the last part of my adult life, you know, part of the last decade, um, and certainly part of the last several years, has been me figuring out what my role is in. In the world, um, as a as a person who is attempting to contribute to uh, building a more just and equitable society, and and I think I found that as as a teacher and a writer, um, those are the things where I feel most, uh, I, I feel my most prof- profound sense of professional joy, uh, and I also try to orient them toward uh, toward justice, um, and I think that that's what anybody, I'd want anybody to do you know find the job that you love and and try to orient it and point it in the direction of justice um so yeah you know the my my kids are all over this book in in all sorts of ways the book is dedicated to them um but the the origin of the book is that it began in may 2017 watching the statues of uh different confederate leaders uh, come down in my hometown in new orleans so watching statues of Jefferson Davis, P.G.T. Beauregard, um, Robert E. Lee, come down and thinking about well, what did it mean that I grew up in this majority black city in which there were more homages to enslavers than there were to enslaved people? And what are the implications of that? What does it mean that to get to school, I had to go down Robert E. Lee Boulevard? To get to uh, the grocery store, I had to go down Jefferson Davis Highway. To get to the, uh, that my middle school was named after a leader of the Confederacy that Uh, My parents still live on a street named after 150 enslaved people. Uh, And the thing about memorials and monuments and names is that they are not just symbols. They are symbols are reflective of the stories that a society tells. And those stories embed themselves into narratives that communities carry. And those narratives shape public policy and public policy shapes the material conditions of people's lives. Um, And and that's not to say that taking down a, a statue of Robert E. Lee is going to erase the racial wealth gap, but it is to say that these things are part of a much larger ecosystem of, of ideas that shape how we decide what a community deserves or doesn't deserve, or what certain people in a society, uh, why they live the way that they do, um, and, and why certain disparities exist. And so I kind of got obsessed with how his, how slavery specifically was memorialized or, or often failed to be memorialized in New Orleans. And then kind of broadened it out to think about what that looked like across the country. Um, and and wanted to find places that represent the sort of uh quilt uh of of experiences, if you will, how how this country is sort of a patchwork of memories and a patchwork of experiences that are just uh stitched together and, and don't always look don't always belong together and oftentimes you know clash uh in in the ways that they tell the story of of this country's history. Um, But that clashing is reflective of the the inconsistency with which slavery is remembered across the country, Um, and that we have no sort of national understanding or consensus uh, of of what this institution did and how it shaped our contemporary political, social, and economic infrastructure, which it did in, in enormous ways.
1: Well said. And your book is a great treatise on the afterlife of slavery in America and how it shaped us. And it also, because it's true, it destroys the illusions and myths and fairy tales we were raised on about meritocracy and superiority and supremacy. And they've worked hard to keep it that way. I've always felt sort of a lot of anger once I started to discover our true history, which is, you know, to me, it's built on blood and genocide slavery, exploitation, and racism. Even now, they're working so hard to tell us lies. And well, Clint, I'll let you say, why is it so important Why that we know what happened? And because I feel like it's essential for us to ever get out of the darkness. We have to know the truth of who we've been, what we are, if we're to ever choose anything different.
0: We absolutely do. I mean, because part of Part of what I want people to understand when they read this book and part of what I was trying to do for the reader was create a sense of, uh, to give us a sense of our proximity to this period of time, uh, both our physical proximity with regard to the landscape uh, of of slavery and its afterlife um, and the scars that are etched into the skin of this land um, across the country that represent this you know, horrific Two and a half century period of time. But I also wanted wanted it to convey our sort of temporal proximity to this period of time. You know, slavery is something that existed in this country for 250 years and has only not existed for about 150. Right. So so this institution existed for a hundred years longer than it hasn't, and existed for more than a century before the US even became became the United States. The woman who opened the National Museum of African American History and Culture alongside the Obama family in 2016 was the daughter of an enslaved person. Not the granddaughter, not the great granddaughter. She was the daughter of someone born into chattel bondage. My grandfather's grandfather was enslaved. So I think about, you know, when my four year old son sits on my grandfather's lap and I imagine my grandfather sitting on his grandfather's lap. And I'm reminded that this history we tell ourselves was a long time ago. Was in fact not that long ago at all. We talk about slavery like it was something that happened in the Jurassic period, like it was like it was the Flintstones and the dinosaurs and slavery. But again, like this this history was in the scope of of human history just yesterday. There are people who are still alive today who loved, were raised by, who had relationships with, people who were born into intergenerational chattel slavery, and so the idea that that history which so profoundly shaped the economic social and political infrastructure of this country the idea that that history would have nothing to do with what the contemporary landscape of inequality looks like is both morally and intellectually disingenuous it, it the fabric of this country is shaped by you know and we keep saying the afterlife of, of slavery which is from the scholar uh, the great scholar sadia hartman um who who talks about how slavery deeply animated all of these these institutions um and and we can't understand why our country looks the way that it does if we don't understand that and and not just slavery but also indigenous genocide and also japanese american internment and also how many immigrant groups were treated um when they first arrived on these countries and how the the conceptions of of race and immigration shaped uh You know what our uh contemporary uh sort of social and and cultural hierarchy looks like um so it's deeply important because once if you're a young person and you start to learn this information then you realize that the reason one community looks one way and another community looks another way is not simply because of the people or individual decisions of folks in those communities it is because of what has been done to those communities generation after generation after generation after generation and that is so important i think about this james baldwin essay all the time uh it's a 1964 essay based on a 1963 speech he gave to a group of teachers in new york city it's called a talk to teachers and in it he says the, the black children have been told over and over again that by this society that they are criminal and the role of the teacher—and he's saying teacher here literally—but but in, but also as a sort of metonym for the larger society, the role of the teacher is to help that child understand that even though the world tells them over and over again that they are criminal, that it is in fact the society that created the conditions that that child is forced to grow up to, grow up in, and the history that has created the circumstances that that child was born into—that is in fact the criminal. And for many of us, that's very intuitive and it's very clear. But I think we can underappreciate the extent to which so many people in this country have the opposite understanding and framework. And it allow and and that is the sort of mythology upon which the entire American project is is built and predicated. It's this myth of meritocracy. It's the idea that the reasons communities look the way that they do, or the reasons certain demographics people live the way that they do, or the reasons certain individuals. Live in the conditions that they do is because they worked hard, or they didn't work hard, or because they are part of a, a culture that uh, carries pathology um, and and uh, and and swims in stereotypes, or or they're not. And and it's so dangerous. And when you're young and you don't have the language or the framework or the history with which to push back against it, you can begin to internalize it. Um, I know I experienced that as a young person. I experienced a sort of emotional and psychological paralysis that in which I knew that so much of what this country was telling me about black people was wrong but I didn't know how to say it Um, and it wasn't until later in my life when I gained this language and gained the history and gained the sociology and studied you know how this country came to be that I gained a sort of clarity and it was almost emancipatory It it was liberatory because the country wasn't able to lie to me anymore and i i was able to see it clearly in many ways for the first time
1: and that is why the truth is so dangerous it is and structural racism today is as present as ever it's dressed up in cute corporate slogans and rainbows this is a thing that affects us in this very moment whether it's policing the incarceration the angola prison redlining loans estimates on houses refinancing Job markets. I mean, I could go on forever. Medical conditions, education, priorities, budgets. It's everywhere. It's insidious. It's like carbon. It's in every single thing.
0: It's everywhere. It is. It's It's the air we breathe. It's the I mean, you can't understand. You know, the example I often give people that I think about all the time is the New Deal. Uh, the New Deal I was taught growing up was, you know, the most progressive series of legislative acts signed in the 20th century. It gave uh, millions of people um, upward mobility and an opportunity to rise into the middle class in ways that they never otherwise would have. Millions of people bought homes, bought cars, went to college, graduated from college, and and created a life for themselves and their family um, and built wealth and achieved upward mobility for themselves and their family in ways that had had never really been possible um, at that scale before. And what's also true is that the New Deal was intentionally written with the uh, specific intention of allowing Southern Dixiecrats at the time to prevent Black people, and specifically Black people in the South, from accessing so many of its benefits. So Black people in the South didn't have access to Social Security, minimum wage protection, housing mortgages, healthcare, oftentimes the GI Bill. And so, You take the greatest catalyst of intergenerational wealth over the course of a century, and you intentionally give it to one group of people, and then intentionally don't give it to another group of people, and then people want to act surprised generations later when there are disparate outcomes along the lines that these resources were allotted. And part of the insidiousness of such a project is that it doesn't, it does the legislation isn't saying like black people can't have access to social security. It does what what racist policy and laws have have often done throughout the uh mid to late 20th century and even today where they said they don't have to say we're gonna keep black people from accessing these benefits they say uh farm workers and domestic workers won't have access to these programs knowing full well that in the late 1930s 75 percent of farm workers and domestic workers in the south were black people and so, so this is how those things operate. And I think a deep, when you, I remember I, I give that example because I rem, that is a piece of information that I remember learning maybe six years ago, seven years ago, and I was like, why didn't no one tell me this growing up? Like this, it, it helped explain so much, and I was like, why isn't this central to every American history class that I've been in like how did we talk about the new deal and not talk about that and i think there are more opportunities now for more teachers to um and more resources for them to share that information with their students but i what part of what i'm saying is that like it took me it wasn't until my adulthood and and in many ways wasn't until me going to get a phd from a fancy school that until I got the access to information that I should have had in like ninth grade, um, and I think that that is reflective of, of a real issue because if young people, black, white, or anyone, aren't being taught about this history, um, then they grow up again to think that the reason people live the way that they do in in both good context and bad is simply because of something that that person has or has not done, um, and and are not able to contextualize it. Uh, amid a set of larger historical
1: forces. And Clint, how come we just literally, we work so hard to just not own this, what happened? What is obvious? What is factual? Why won't we just simply own it, admit it, and then at least start a conversation? Why is this such an anathema? Why is this the third rail?
0: I think that for a lot of people, it, accepting that would mean having to let go of a story they have told about who they are in the world and why they have the things that they do or who their family is in the world. I think the most extreme example of this is, uh, you know, I went to, for the book, the Blandford Cemetery, which was one of the largest Confederate cemeteries in the country, a place where the remains of 30,000 Confederate soldiers are buried. Uh, and I went for the Sons of Confederate Veterans Memorial Day celebration. And part of what became clear to me there was that for so many people, history is not about primary source documents. It is not about empirical evidence. It is a story that they have been told. And it's a story that they tell. It's an heirloom that is passed down uh, across generations. It is something that is deeply entangled in someone's sense of uh, family and lineage and community and there's a hard time disentangling the falsehoods somebody was raised to believe from the love and affinity they have for the people who told them those falsehoods so you know i think about a guy named jeff that i met at blandford who told me about how when he was young uh and this is a guy he was wearing a biker vest adorned in like confederate paraphernalia you know long beard um almost almost a he was not a caricature, but he was almost dressed as like a a caricature of a, uh, of a Confederate, Sunday Confederate veteran would be. Um, And he was like, when I was young, I used to come down to the cemetery and my grandfather and I would sit in this gazebo um, that sat in the middle of the cemetery. And we'd watch the deer at dusk sort of slalom through the tombstones and, and eat grass. And and he would tell me stories of his, of all the men buried here. And he would, Share songs with me uh, that sort of longed for for the Confederate and Dixie life, and so Jeff's understanding of that land is so deeply tied to the nostalgia he feels for these moments and memories he shared with his grandfather, this man that he loves, and so it is not simple. It's it's not as simple as then being presented with new information and saying, "Oh, well." I guess that's not true because it, it taps into something much deeper um, that many, you know, there are certainly some people who say, oh, well, my, what my grandfather told me wasn't true, I guess, you know, and I'm going to believe something different. There are others who can't, if you are, you know, if you, if they are made to accept that what their grandfather was telling them was a lie, it brings into question so much of how they formulated who they believe themselves to be in the world um and that becomes existential right that's not just a question of like learning new information that is an existential threat to who who they believe themselves to be um and so as the result Jeff tells the same story his grandfather told him to his granddaughters and and thus it is a it continues to be the heirloom and the mythology that is passed down across generations so you know for so for so many people, it's not about historical fact. Um, it's it, it again is a story and it's something that is emotional. It's something that's embedded in their in their hearts and their sense of self. And, and people have a difficult time of, of letting go of that.
1: That's a very sophisticated take because it does take a tremendous amount of emotional confidence, stability, growth, development to be able to keep evolving. And say, oh, we were laughing before we came on that we used to both, you know, I could say for myself, I used to think I knew a lot. And then I did keep learning in the show. And it's like, great. Now I'm much more enlightened, but I'm realized how ignorant I am. There's, but it takes the ego has to really take a back seat. And a lot of times with our history, I, I hear that phrase, don't let the truth stand in the way of a good story, you know, because they're like fairy tales, like John Wayne movies and things like that. And, not everybody can rewire. You have to be able to uh, really be secure in who you are. And I feel like the grandfather might not have who lied to him. And so now we know better. It's no different than medicine. You know, I'm not going to use leeches and blood drainings just because grandpa did or great-grandfather. We, we've evolved. But it's much more uh, difficult sociologically and emotionally. As As I read your beautiful book, I thought, boy, my brother Clint friend went on a pilgrimage it really was, wasn't it? When you decided to start hitting the road and going up to Thomas Jefferson's place and here you are in Angola and all these other, you ended up in Africa. I mean, it's an incredible, vivid description, but it really was like a pilgrimage for you personally, wasn't it? It was.
0: And and what I wanted to do was take the, I've spent the last several years uh, deeply engaged in sort of historiography of slavery, right? All these sort of decades of scholarship from from incredible, incredible historians, um, like Annette Gordon-Reed, Diana Ramey Berry, uh, Walter Johnson, Kevin Levin, Ira Berlin, David Blight, uh, Leslie Harris, just so many who've been really transformational in, in helping me understand what slavery was and what impact it had on our country. And I, you know, Part of what I wanted to do was take the best of that history and give it a sort of narrative and literary dimension and go to these places physically um, and, and put that history in conversation with the land. Like, what did it look like? What did it smell like? What does the air taste like? Who are the people who are responsible for telling the story of that land? What did they look like? What are their backgrounds? What are their views? How have their views changed or evolved? Uh, what is it you know it's one thing to understand or read about a slave cabin and understand it in the abstract it's something something different i think to stand inside of one to hear the way the the wood moans under your feet to see the way that light sneaks in through cracks in the wood panels and to consider that this is a a, a building that people lived in that people slept in um and it, it just gives a different sense of um of intimacy i think uh and proximity to to this history that that for me was deeply important you know because first and foremost the book is written for me the, the book is is not a i don't want anybody to think that this book was written by like somebody who began this book as an expert on slavery uh far from it the book was uh an effort to to learn uh and fill so many gaps that um that existed for me um and and it was written in many ways for like a 16-year-old Clinton who was who w- wanted um this information uh and who f- who would have really benefited from having this information. So it, it did become a personal pilgrimage of sorts because it again gave me uh a more intimate understanding of both the horror and the humanity of of what slavery was.
1: What's that phrase, the banality of evil too. People just, this is what they do. I There were parts in the book that surprised me as you went through it. Were there things that really kind of surprised you that caught you off guard that stand out when you think back?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I was kind of surprised by my capacity to be surprised. Um, so there were surprises everywhere, but one of the things that was most surprising was uh, Angola prison. Um, and i've been you know i've been working in prisons and jails for the past 7 years uh, and so being inside of carceral spaces is not new to me but i think i was struck by the particular horror of of that institution so angola is the largest maximum security prison in the country 18,000 acres wide bigger than the island of manhattan is a place where Uh, 75% of the people held there are Black men, over 70% of them are serving life sentences, Uh, and it is built on top of a former plantation. And what I tell people is that if you were to go to Germany and you had the largest maximum security prison in Germany, and it was built on top of a former concentration camp in which the people held there were disproportionately Jewish, that place would be a global emblem of anti-Semitism, and rightfully so. It would be abhorrent, it would be disgusting. We would never allow a place like that to exist because it would so clearly run counter to our moral and ethical sensibilities. And here in the United States, we have the largest maximum security prison in the country in which the vast majority of people held there are Black men serving life sentences who go out into fields of what was once a plantation and work for virtually no pay while someone watches them on horseback with a gun over their shoulder. And so what are the ways that white supremacy not only enacts physical violence against people's bodies, but also collectively numbs us? to certain types of violences that in an, another global context would be wildly unacceptable. And what does it mean that that place not only is not willing to confront that history, but that that place has a gift shop? And at that gift shop, they they're, they sell shot glasses and coffee mugs and baseball caps and t-shirts and have paraphernalia that has the silhouette of a watchtower on it and says the words Angola, a gated community, almost to make a mockery of and belittle the, the lived conditions and the reality of oppression that thousands of people are continuing to experience on that land. So I was, I was surprised by that. I never expected to see a prison with a gift shop in front of it. Um, that was, uh, that was new
1: and, and really haunting. Okay. And I'm screaming in myself, how is that okay?
0: It's not but it reflects, the, it reflects the ways that both the social function of prison is to physically remove, and in many ways socially and emotionally remove uh, the people who are held there from our collective consciousness so that we don't see them or, or think of them often. Uh, obviously the, the families of these people do, but um, writ large as a society, that is part of what prisons attempt to do. And, and so when these sorts of things happen, there's less likely to be outraged because we're not even cognizant of like what the prison is is doing and how it functions because it's often physically so distant from from where we are uh and then also reflects a, a profound failure to understand how the afterlife of slavery has shaped these institutions um very clearly there is an unsettling parallel to much of what is going on at angola to the history that uh You know centuries ago transpired on that land um and and if we had a more collective understanding of of that land um and and of that history then i imagine it would be much less likely that we would find ourselves um having to have a conversation about why that prison exists at all much less on on that plot of land
1: how has the experience of the book these last 5 or 6 years changed the way you personally move through the world today i think i mentioned before it's it's really given me a lot of clarity
0: i think i just can see this country with much clearer eyes and i can see this country for who for what i think it it actually is and i think i've been on that journey and and to your point like that journey never ends right there's not like a threshold that you cross where you're like okay now i get it there's always more to learn there's always more to understand um and i will be on that journey for the rest of my life in the context of of race and history but also also all a host of all of all sorts of things um but I I just I just know so much more than I did um and I feel more equipped with which to make connections between again the the inequality that we see today and the origins of that inequality um, which are bound up so often um and specifically in the in the U.S context of anti-blackness which
1: are inextricably bound up in in chattel slavery do you feel more at home in this land or are you more like Baldwin? Do you feel a stranger in a strange land?
0: I think I feel like the Baldwin who says that I love America more than any country in the world. And that's why I reserve the right to criticize her perpetually. Um, this is this is my home. It is the home of my parents and my grandparents and my great-great-grandparents and my great-great-great-grandparents and, and you know, generations before then in ways that I i will never be able to track given the um the specific uh sort of as as the scholar Orlando Patterson says the natal alienation of of black people from from our homeland um so this is my home and and I think what I want for this country or for any institution is to Acknowledge and be honest about what it has done, um, in order to move forward and and fully repair um, that harm, uh, and and to move toward the sort of promise that it made uh, when it founded this democracy, um, or claimed to found this democracy, uh, and you know, recognize having the country for itself recognize that it is a promise that they have yet to live up to.
1: Do you ever feel fully safe as you move through the world? I, I'm not,
0: hmm. yes and no. I mean, I, in, in the sense that, I mean, I'm, I'm clearly, I think there are levels and gradations to it, right? Like clearly my educational status and my class status, uh, shelter me or protect me from the most insidious versions of white supremacist violence that specifically and often most directly impact in Black people living in poverty. Um, so it would be disingenuous of me to suggest that simply my race is in and of itself the thing that makes me feel, that, that puts me at risk, which is not to say that it doesn't. It Most certainly does. There are examples all over the place of uh, people, black folks, who've been attacked by state-sanctioned violence who are not protected by their their class status. Um, but but very, you know, as somebody who's worked in prisons for the past seven years, it's very clear the relationship between race and poverty and how the sort of insidious entanglement of those two um, creates a specific sort of threat to um, black people living in poverty. So. So I think, you know, it's a both and it's like, yes, and in many ways I'm um protected from from some of those forces, but but certainly not not in always. Um and, and you what we want to do is build a world in which one does not have to, you know, have a PhD from an Ivy League institution, um, in order to feel that it provides them some measure of uh protectiveness but again like violence is not just physical violence violence manifests itself in all sorts of ways there's psychological violence there's a sort of social violence that black people of every uh social class experience i mean i think about the maternal uh mortality rate and how black women are three to four times more likely to die than white women during pregnancy Uh, and i think how that's that rate exists across the board regardless of one's educational status and I think about how my my own wife, um, who's a you know Ivy League Ivy League educated lawyer, had really complicated pregnancies and had doctors who who were really unresponsive and and help and and we had experiences where we had to where but for the fact that we knew that we needed to go find an, a, a different set of opinions. You know, I don't something really catastrophic could have happened um and and that is something that um you know even having to consider that on a sort of daily basis is a sort of weathering as as social scientists call it um that black folks experience every day so that's a long way of saying uh yes and no but i'm also i'm not i'm not and i don't think any of us are defined by that um our lives are not defined by fear our lives are not defined by um, that which attempts to to harm us in implicit and explicit ways Um, what it means to be a black american in this country is so much more robust and so much more uh, so much
1: fuller beautifully nuanced i love the scope of that and it does hurt my heart about the pregnancies and those facts and also the personal experience of it and you know, as I saw you become a father, I follow you closely because uh, so much admiration. I love your work. I wondered how, how is, I'm not a father. So I'm, I'm asking theoretically, how is Clint, how has it changed your relationship in terms of you and the future and how you think about the future now that it's not just you, but there's these beautiful living beings who should hopefully live on beyond you. Has it altered the way you relate and think about the future these days?
0: I mean, I think... I think often about how I am a part of a history and a lineage of people who fought to build a better world, even when they knew they might not see it themselves, Uh, whether in the context of slavery, in the context of Jim Crow. uh, There were there are millions and millions of, of people who fought to make a more just and equitable, joyous world and who never got to see the fruits of their labor. But that world is only possible f- for me, and the world we live in is only possible because of the work that they uh, that they did. And so I think that that having kids makes me more acutely aware of that that like, you know so much of what I do is not so I can see the the benefits of of trying to build a, a better world. It is so that um hopefully my children or or even their children or their children's children or However far down the line you go, um, that somebody someday will see it and benefit from it. But it, that it's only possible because there are generations of people before them who are who are chipping away at that wall and and making the wall a little a little bit less thick than it would have otherwise been.
1: Yeah, my Angelo used to always say, "I stand on beautiful shoulders, and that she would encourage others to be those someone's rainbow and someone's sky." I have a mysterious question I've not been able to figure out. Like I said, I follow you closely. Um, How come you're so passionate about soccer? What's going on with soccer, dude?
0: (laughs) Oh, man. Soccer was my, it was everything to me. I mean, from age age five to 17, I thought I was going to be a professional soccer player. Um, I loved it. I mean, my mom, I was the first person in my family to play soccer. My mom tried to sign me up for, I think, uh, like peewee football and missed the deadline and then her, her coworker was like why don't you sign him up to play some soccer and she was like soccer like uh, okay i guess and and signed me up and i fell in love with it it just it dominated my childhood it's all i ever thought about um, and then i got to college i played division one soccer at davidson college except i didn't play Um, and so I was like, you know, I grew up to realize that Louisiana is not a hotbed of soccer talent, which to, with against which to measure your skills. And so I, uh, I was a star in Louisiana and then I got to, you know, I got to college, which, which isn't even, you know, much less like my dream of playing for Arsenal in the English Premier League, um and and didn't play and so i had this sort of 18 19 year old existential crisis where i was like this thing that has defined me for so much of my life i'm not good at anymore um and i think that it was at that moment that i turned to writing and sort of reoriented so much of my work ethic and passion for for soccer toward um towards something different uh and i was really trying to figure out who i was outside of the soccer field but uh and that's and, and now i'm you know get to make a life as a professional writer which i'm very grateful for but uh i mean soccer is just i've always you know i had my room was full of posters of soccer players and oh i've loved arsenal um football club uh unfortunately for for many years now um yeah it's it's uh I just love it. I'm excited about the Euros, um which start today actually. I don't know when this airs but start on the day we're recording. Um and uh yeah, it's just it's just a nice also like change of pace and respite from the sort of the subject matter that I spend a lot of my time studying and thinking about.
1: Although I have to say it seems like Arsenal's constantly breaking your heart and
0: that's all they do is break my heart. <laughs> but now. yeah, that's you basically. remain loyal. You're
1: like a Cubs fan or
0: something it's i mean and then but then they the cubs win what they like they they, won finally the championship for but it was like what 150 something years or something wild but hopefully it won't take me as long but um but yeah i'm i'm uh i'm i'm in it
1: you are devoted i know i have to let you go the world wants a minute with you i'm just happy you came on inspired the doors always open i want to encourage everybody to please read this book buy it You'll blow through it, you won't be able to put it down. Don't start it at night, you'll stay up all night. Uh, Any last words of inspiration for the young folks around the world out there, perhaps either in search of a dream or a ray of light? um, You personally are just such a beacon for me, personally, and uh, your voice, your authenticity. I wonder if anything comes from you organically in this moment that you might share with uh, the young men and women around the world who, who listen to us, perhaps looking for a kernel of wisdom or, or a bit of hope?
0: Hmm. Uh, that's very generous of you and very kind of you. I certainly don't feel like a, a beacon. I feel like a like a tired dad in some tube socks. Um, but, uh, you know, it's just, just always remember that it's bigger than you. It's bigger than you. Um, and we are just, like I said before, there are so many who work to make your life possible And it's our responsibility to work to make things possible for for folks who come after us in ways that we we can't even see. You've been listening to the What Matters Most podcast, a 100% listener-supported program. If you feel inspired, please go to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com backslash most and join our family. So until the next time, stay inspired and in the light.